We need to have this broader look at our faith because we need to understand more about other other Christians, like what they believe, why they believe it, how it relates to what we believe, so that we aren't treating our, each other with, with mutual suspicion and distrust so that we can engage productively across denominational lines. And that can be very hard to do, I think, the longer you're in one tradition and you just sort of become accustomed to that tradition and accustomed to thinking of it, you know, maybe as, as the only true variant of Christianity. I think we, we start to, to maybe even doubt the, the faith of those who, who believe a little bit differently than we do, even though they're still very much focused on Jesus, very faithful, very like in agreement on all the, the core of our faith. try this a little bit differently. And so before we get started, I say it often and I say it frequently and I mean it every single time. This show will not continue to be a show, uh, if I'm honest, after the first year, just because everything has to be renewed uh, without the support of our patrons. And so I'm happy and I'm pleased to say that the show is well on its way uh, to being in a position that it can at least pay for itself. And so thank you to Patrick and Teresa and Lee and Jewel, and Luke, and the others like you, some of you since the beginning and some recently, that have come on and supported the show on Patreon. If you have not yet done that, please do that. Uh, Minimum is a dollar a month. Maximum is a mortgage payment a month, and I don't expect any of you to do that. Some of you get books. Some of you just get open and honest conversations. A lot of you get easy and early access to the show each week, days, sometimes weeks before the show is out. I also post new things, little miniature clips, updates, goofiness that comes out of my brain. I appreciate each and every one of you, and I would ask any of you listening, consider doing that today. Either as soon as this episode is done, or either way, consider doing it today. You mean more than you know to the success and the growth of this show. Today on the show, I spoke with Bonnie Christian. Bonnie has written a fantastic book. Uh, One, honestly, I wish I'd have had six or seven years ago, and one that I have recommended to some of the staff at my church that I think we should give this to every high schooler and everyone that's going into college as just a, here's our gift to you. There are not really answers in here, but here's kind of what you can expect to be challenged with as your faith has to become more flexible. A Flexible Faith came out in May 2018. I highly recommend you go get it, and you'll find links for that in the show notes. A bit about Bonnie. She is a theological and political writer with a national following. She has columns and bylines on places like The Week, Time, CNN, The Hill, Relevant. She is well-written, well-versed, and knows her stuff. And so I can't wait for you to hear today's conversation. I can't wait for the thoughts and the ideas that it sparks in you as you listen to it. Let's roll the tape. Here we go. Bonnie Christian.
Bonnie Christian, thank you so much for joining the Can I Say This at Church podcast. I know that we have rescheduled at, at least three or four times, and so I appreciate your graciousness and your flexibility on your calendaring, and I'm, I'm excited that you're here. Yeah, thank you for having me, though. I mean, to be fair, I feel like I have to take credit for at least one of those reschedulings. <laughs> it's fine. Uh, just, you know, in the, in the name of honesty here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was willing to bear the brunt of that. It's fine. That shouldn't, no, no worries. Well, everybody's busy. So, all right. As I, I can't tell you how pleased I was when I got your email uh, asking about the opportunity to talk to you on the show. And, and if I'm honest, and I, and I just a minute ago recorded the intro for this episode, I wish I'd have had the book that you wrote about seven years ago. It would have saved me at least a lot of time in figuring out what my options were outside of my fundamentalist evangelical upbringing. And, and so I'm sad that that's not the case. But before we get into your book, what would you want people to know about you? Because you hold a lot of hats. <laughs> I do. Um, I mean, the short version is that I'm a, I'm a writer. This is A Flexible Faith is my first book. Um, and then most of the writing that I do on more of like a weekly basis, most of what pays the bills, it's more political. Um, I do some some theological writing, you know, outside of book stuff, but um, so I'm the, the weekend editor for The Week, which is a, a very confusing sentence. Uh, the Week is a news magazine and I run the website on the weekends. Um, and then I'm also a fellow at a foreign policy shop called Defense Priorities where I write uh, foreign policy commentary on, you know, the, the news of the, the week, the day. And, and I do some, some freelance writing as well. Um, so that's mostly what, what keeps me busy. And then um, I live in the Twin Cities with my husband and our dogs and who will hopefully not interrupt this podcast too badly. And uh, uh, yeah, I moved up here for seminary um, a couple of years ago. And we like the area and are planning on sticking around. Yeah, that's that's most of most of it. <laughs> are you still in seminary now? Or are you done? No, I graduated in 2016. So now I'm looking into PhD programs, um, but that's probably at least a, a year away from from starting. Just in terms of like, you know, you got to get funding and write your proposal and all that sort of stuff, which is not done yet at all. Religion and politics are two things we're not supposed to discuss. It's With true. <laughs> doing what you do for a living, do you find it hard? Have you gotten any pushback from writing a book on religion? Or have most people just been like, no, nah, it's fine. Not a big deal. Do what you want to do. Who cares? Um, you know, for a long time, I was very concerned about sort of writing about both publicly and doing it well, especially in the sense of uh, I'm so wary of, in any sense, communicating um, you know, here's my politics and you have to agree with them. Like these are the most Christian politics or the only Christian politics. Right. Like I never want to be communicating that. Um, I mean, obviously I think there's a, you know, a good fit and, and my, my faith in, inspires and, and decides a lot of my politics, but that's, I don't want to communicate that message of you have to think like I do politically or, or I have doubts about your faith. Um, and so for a long time, I kept my main website sort of strictly on politics stuff. And then I had sort of like a little side blog where I did theology. And then eventually, sometime when I was in seminary, I was just like, you know what, this is dumb. Like, why am I keeping these things separate? There's there's no reason to be, um, I don't know, sort of compartmentalizing 
my life like that. Like I can have this, this caution of mixing things inappropriately without like keeping things separate in such a weird way. And so some of the writing that I do on a weekly basis is uh, sort of at the intersection of religion and politics. Like I'll write about, um, you know, how, how religion affects our politics, which, ha- which happens so much here in the States, topics about civil religion, that sort of thing. And so I think it's not totally out of left field for, for my more like political interest readers at this point in a way that maybe it would have been come as something of surprise five years ago. The book, Flexible Faith, that you've written, I like how you approach over the course of, I think it's 18 chapters, it could be 20. I think I think it's eighteen. Um, you you approach s- some really big columns or pillars of any version of Christianity that we are, uh, or that you that someone pr- would profess to be, be it Orthodox or Catholic or uh, Messianic Judaism, and, and a lot of things that I'd never really thought about before. But I'm curious, why did you decide to write it? Was it seminary that did that, or was it something you've been struggling with since you were a youth, or what is kind of the the birthing of this book? I really usually go back to like it's it's two audiences that I have in mind, and and each of those comes with its own motivation. Um, so one would be Christians who are are like good with with their faith, with their church context, like. You know, obviously we're never like at a good final place, but you know, you're not in a big season of doubt. You're not in a big season of questions or you're happy with your congregation, that sort of thing. But even in that space, I think that, that we need to have this broader look at our faith because we need to understand uh, more about other, other Christians, like why, what they believe, why they believe it, how it relates to what we believe, um, so that we aren't treating our, each other with with mutual suspicion and distrust, so that we can engage productively across denominational lines, and that can be very hard to do. I think the longer you're in one tradition, and you just sort of become accustomed to that tradition and accustomed to thinking of it, you know, maybe as as the only true true, true variant of Christianity, um, I think we we start to to maybe even doubt the the faith of those who who believe a little bit differently than we do, even though they're still you know very much focused on Jesus, very faithful, very like in agreement on all the the core of our faith. And so then the second um, audience and motivation is for Christians who are in a a season of doubt um, or questioning. And there have been a lot of books, um, more memoir style books that talk about like the experience of going through a time of deconstruction. And those books are great. um, And I think can be super useful if you're going through that and you want to, you know, like read about someone else's experience and and use that to process your own experience. Um, But what I wanted to do was really say like, all right, so this has happened to you. Um, You can't go back to to where you were before you had these questions, Um, but you don't want to stay in just like this limbo of questions and, and doubt forever. So let's have a really practical way to say what comes next? Like what else is out there? What are your options within Christianity? What can you begin to to learn about to start to sort of rebuild your faith? Why did you choose these 18 things? Why why those topics as opposed to, well, I don't want to give away, I have other questions lined up specifically for a few chapters that I have questions about, but, but why these? Why not? I mean, there's so many things about church that we could question or, or drill down. Yeah, so I, I looked at... Um, 
there have been some sort of similar books in the past um, across the spectrum by Greg Boyd and Paul Eddy is a, a big one. And I've mentioned that in the book as a, a resource for further reading. And then there's a, a Zondervan series. Each, I don't know what this whole series is called, but the books are typically called like four views on, you know, hell or three views on whatever. Um, and those do it book length, what I do, you know, in a few paragraphs in each chapter. Um, and so I looked at things like that just to sort of see, like, when other people have come to to a similar project, what have been the questions that they found important to a lot of people to answer? So I looked at, the, at books like that to sort of just find out what other people had thought. And then I also included more, and I'm not really sure if this is the best way to put it, but more like lifestyle issues, if you will. So things like, should can Christians be rich? Um, should Christians vote? Things that I think don't tend to get quite as much attention from those books, which which are usually a little bit more interested in in areas of like theology proper. Um, but I think those tend to be really important to people on a on a practical day to day basis, and so I wanted to to cover that as well. I wholeheartedly agree. Most of those books. Well, I have one of I think it's Zondermans. It's like four views on hell, and it's got mm-hmm. well. In when I say hell, it, it has purgatory in there, which I'm not sure that, that counts as hell, but it is something akin to that. But what you hear people argue about in church picnics and on Facebook and on Twitter and at PTA meetings is the topics or are the topics that you have in your book. Most people could care less about transubstantiationism, but they mm-hmm. do care about how we vote or you know the way that we lean politically. And so I do appreciate that. I just was I just was curious. I wonder how much of that is an inference of what you do now. You know, how much of your, here's what I write about, here's what I hear on the internet and in publications of what people are worried about, and then how does theology connect to that? Yeah, I definitely think it affects it coming from, um, you know, not a not so much an academic theology background, but from like a news and journalism background. Definitely that has played into the selection of topics. At the very beginning, you set the stage and... And I'll be honest, I haven't read Greg Boyd's book, and I don't know if you got this from his, but you talk about the concentric circles, and the best way that I can describe that to people that either don't have the book in front of them is if you picture the Target logo, but you add a few more circles after it. And so you've got Jesus at the center, and then how do we spread out from that? So it's Jesus at the center, and it's not even like our belief about Jesus, but like the person of Jesus himself. Um, And that's like the core of the faith. And then the first, like, smallest circle around that is what we would call dogma. And these are, like, super basic beliefs that all little o Orthodox Christians can agree to about, like, what God is like and and what he's done and what he wants from us. And so I used uh, the Apostles' Creed in the book as a good encapsulation of dogma. It's just like, this is, if someone says roughly, you know, in 25 words or less, what does it mean to be a Christian? This is the sort of thing you're going to come up with. Things that, you know, a Catholic and a Baptist and a Methodist, everyone agrees on um, because it's so, so basic that way. The next circle further out would be what we can call doctrine. And that's the sort of thing that divides denominations. So, you know, things like does God choose who's saved? Things like how should we do baptism? Things like uh, predestination. That's that's the doctrine level. Um, and, and those are super important, but they're not the sort of thing where it's really definitional to what it means to be a Christian. It's usually more of an explanation of the dogma level stuff of like, okay, so we all believe that here's how we just, we disagree on how it works. Um, And then the largest 
circle would be um, opinions. And that's the sort of thing where we could agree to disagree within a denomination or even within a single congregation. And so the things that I'm discussing in a flexible faith are all either doctrine or opinion level issues. And you can even debate about what properly goes in each of those categories. But it's never about it's never about Jesus in terms of like questioning, you know, his, his divinity and his place in our faith. And it's never about dogma level issues. Like the assumption is that that that's all settled. That's that is what it is means to be a Christian. And we're working out and exploring different ways to be a Christian given that foundation. And for those listening, just kind of what some of those sound like. So like some of the topics as I'm looking at it here is, you know, does God plan everything that happens? Uh, why do we get baptized and how, you know, what happens at the end of the world? And, and so there's just a lot of, of those type of topics. He reminds me every morning I am still your faithful friend He is good to those who seek Him I will wait for Him to bless And the Lord will be my portion in the I am curious, what made you decide to do the Q&A? Because for those, that, those were my favorite parts, partly because I already knew some of the information in the chapters, although I was surprised at what I didn't know. But the Q&As to me, I really enjoyed those. Um, I almost I almost want a whole book of Q&As. <laughs> yeah, I really enjoyed doing those as well. Um, so for people who, who haven't seen the book, in between each of the chapters, there's like a five-question Q&A with Christians who are living out their faith in more unusual ways. Um, and so, you know, depending on what your, your tradition, your background is, maybe some of these will be familiar. Maybe they'll all be totally unfamiliar. Um, but the idea is that, you could spend a lifetime in church and, and most of these people you'll probably never encounter, which I think is a loss. Um, and so I went with the q and I mean, I could have sort of just written about them, right, and done like a little report. But I really wanted to have that element of personal introduction and like meeting them in their own words and finding out from someone who's in that tradition, like what what is important to you? Why, in many cases, did you choose to be here? you know, what do you think this this facet of Christianity has to contribute to, to other Christians who, who maybe are like, I'm never going to become a Benedictine nun, right? But that doesn't mean that I don't have things to learn from them. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting part of the book to compile. Um, there were some pretty amazing moments in like how I was connecting with those people. I think the craziest one was, I interviewed a, a member of a Latin American based community from El Salvador and I got in touch with him. It was, I think it was like recommended to me by like a journalist in Oregon, maybe to connect with like a nonprofit in New York, which put me in touch with, I want to say a, a priest or a lay missionary in Africa who had this guy's contact. It was crazy. Like it was like spanning, I think, at least three continents to get in touch. And then we spoke by 
Google Translate because he doesn't speak English and I don't speak Spanish. And so I'm like plugging my stuff into Google Translate. And then in, for the for the questions, I'm, I had a, a friend who speaks Spanish check it and be like, yeah, this makes sense. But <laughs> That could have got dangerous because I'm sure you've seen those those nice funny videos of where someone will just plug in five sentences into Google Translate, run it right. through 20 different languages, and it ends up saying... Accidentally send him some horrible insult. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Which one is your favorite Q&A? And that's probably not fair. It is not fair. And it's a hard choice. I really enjoyed um, Claire Stober from the Bruderhof, which is a common purse community. Um, a lot of their locations are in like upstate New York, but they have... And that's where she is, but they have locations elsewhere. Um, but I thought her story was super interesting because if I remember correctly, she had had like a career on Wall Street and then she gives that up and goes to this. They're not Amish. They're not like they use technology. They're there, but they they're still a, a common person community. They have all their goods in common. You have, you know, a little bit of personal property, but you share all your money Um and yeah, it was just a, a, a super interesting conversation with her. But they're all great. It's hard to pick. The story of Dirk Willems, is that how you say his last name? I think so. I had never heard that story. Um, and I tried to put myself in his in his shoes. And, and correct me if I'm saying this wrong. This is from memory. Uh, for those listening, he basically was incarcerated, mm-hmm. escapes. The guy chasing him down goes to drown in like a lake because he's <laughs> fat and Dirk wasn't because he's been starved. And mm-hmm. as a Christian, he turns around and goes to save the guy at his own dismay, obviously. I yes. can't imagine myself doing that ever, ever. But I think that was my, one of yeah. my favorite moments in that entire book. Just it put me in a place where I felt challenged and, mm-hmm. it, and it wasn't quote unquote scripture. So, yeah, no, it's a crazy story. And it was so I I'm in a, a Mennonite community and I did not grow up Mennonite. And so I had not heard it before joining um this community and yeah it's a and i mean the story is that not only does he you know go back to save this guy and then get burned at the stake for his trouble but um but that he spins around like just without hesitation like it's not like there's a couple minutes of dirk kind of standing on the ice thinking about like "Eh, should i go back i'm probably gonna get killed no he's just like oh, I have to save him. It's not even a second thought. And it's a crazy story. I don't I don't know that I would want to go back either, especially because it's not like, you know, he was in any way at fault for this guy drowning. It's not like he did any violence to the guy. Like, I think no one would have faulted him for going on and for, you know, saying, let his fellow guards rescue him. That's not my job. But he, he didn't do that couple specific topics I want to ask you about. Um, the, the first one is this. As I read through, I, th- I don't know that I've ever had a thought since I began my deconstruction phase and my rebuilding phase. Um, and I'd like to borrow a, a, an adjective or a way that someone described it to me on Twitter. It's, it shouldn't be a deconstructing. It's more like art at restoration, where you're just getting rid of really, really bad tarnish and uncovering something more beautiful underneath. But I found myself when I read through, I don't fit into any category. Um, I don't know if I grew up as a fundamental fundamentalist evangelical. You know, I, I now think I hold to Christus Victor, but I also still hold parts of my faith that are more fundamentalist. And there are other parts that I think the Eastern Church has it right and the Western Church has it wrong. And so for those like me, 
how do I know what kind of a Christian I am? Or is that even a question that I need to be asking? Yeah, I mean, I think as much as we might claim we don't like labels, I think we all like labels. Like, it's nice to be able to to say, here are the five boxes I fit in. Mm-hmm. And it's tough because for many people, um, you know, obviously there's there's a degree to which internal consistency of, of like, you know, some views are not going to fit well with others. And so there, there'll be some degree of with, within which that'll sort of sort you into categories. But yeah, I think many people, especially now where we are more, much more fluid about drawing from different traditions and changing traditions as our faith evolves um, than, than it used to be in the past. I think there will be many people who, who like you will find that they don't fit neatly into one category or another. My answer, I guess, is try to find the closest healthy community in your area that works, I guess, and go with that. Um, and, you know, certainly don't try to, to force yourself to conform to, to the community's views where they differ from yours. That, you know, if, if that difference maintains, that's fine. But I would encourage people to not let that inability to find a denomination or a group that perfectly agrees with you on, on every subject to become like a real sticking point or, or something that you really focus on. Because, I mean, that would be nice, like, you know, if we all found a church that, that fit with what we agree on on every issue, but it's not going to happen, probably. Um, and I think we need to learn to be okay with that and to, to be able to, you know, to, to worship and commit to people who are not in 100% agreement with us, um, both on like the macro scale of, of recognizing like the church universal, um, and then, but also on the local level of saying like, we can be a congregation in a community together and, and we can still disagree on some stuff. A couple specific chapters that I think are, are more and more pertinent as each day goes on. Um, one of them is you talk about you know gay relationships. You basically talk about how we can't take the text, those clobber texts that Paul writes when we want to condemn gay um, relationships, and then not also say that you can also use heterosexual relationships to also be just as sinful and just as as wrong. And so I'm curious your thoughts on that. Do you? You don't you don't express a lot of opinions in the book. Um, most of the chapters you don't actually tell us what you believe, and I do like that. But I, there's a part of me that doesn't like that because <laughs> I'm used to people telling me in their books what they believe. Um, and so, where do you come with that? Because I don't see that as a topic going away anytime soon. It's only going to get more vocal, more and more vocal. Uh, and I can tell you just personally, I I spoke with my wife who's a nurse not long ago. And and I we watched a show. It's a made up show on on TV. And this little girl was born with both genitals. And mm-hmm. it wasn't until there was a medical emergency that they found out. And the mom had to be in a position of, no, here's what they are. But had they waited six more years, she'd be deemed, um, you know, gender questioning, or she'd be deemed something else. Uh, and so, how as Christians do we come down with that? Or I guess where do you come down on that? Um, well, so intersex cases like you described are are really tricky and I think their own category um, where you you are born biologically with with both sets of genitals or some combination of reproductive organs Um, and that's a an incredibly difficult scenario that I 
you know, in some sense, especially for the parents, I wouldn't wish on anyone because it's such a grave decision that you're, you know, faced with making for the child's whole life. And, you know, I, I, I remember hearing in maybe elementary or middle school about that case from the 90s where um, I don't even know if that was a, a case where the child was intersex or where they had like an accident in circumcision. And so the boy was raised as a girl, but always felt like a boy. I don't remember the details, but it was terrible because when he reached like high school or adulthood, he was just struggling with these overwhelming feelings of that something was wrong. Um, and eventually did, I believe, live as a man. And then I think committed suicide and just his whole life was ruined by mistakes that had been made in his parents and doctors best intentioned decision making um, when he was quite young. But as far as uh, gay marriage more broadly, um, that is one of like the I think it's about two thirds of chapters where I don't give my own opinion, um, mainly because the book isn't really about me. Um, and so while I, I do like to share my view on the, the issues where I'm most passionate, um, in, in many cases, I felt like I didn't really have, you know, anything of, of note to add or anything of, of value to add. Um, as far as that topic specifically, my denomination and congregation are beginning, um, well, for our denominator, our congregation specifically beginning later this summer a community discernment process on that because it's coming up for a vote in our denomination, I believe next summer. And so, yeah, I didn't really, I want to go through that with my community and I didn't really want to, you know, stake out a big position on my own because I knew as I was writing that this was coming up without going through that with my church. So that was my, my decision for not, for that being one of the, the majority of chapters where I don't weigh in in the Mennonite tradition, and I'm not familiar with them, and, and I mm-hmm. should be more familiar, because where I live in Central Virginia, there are a lot of Mennonite communities around me. The um, old order, right? Uh, for, I don't know. I'm going to say sure, oh. but I honestly don't know. <laughs> um, I went to I went to college in Bridgewater near Harrisonburg. Oh, then yes. Uh-huh. At Bridgewater, I'm I'm actually in Stewart's Draft, so I'm just okay, down yeah. the street. So We would hear the, the buggies clopping by our dorm rooms at night. The rumor at least, was that the Mennonite, the Old Order Mennonite kids liked to go to the next town over where they would try on jeans and look at themselves in a mirror. And that was like their big teenage rebellion. Well, Harrisonburg has great stores, so that's fine. In your tradition, then, if, is that something where it's it's like the Southern Baptist Convention or something where, no, we said this, and now if you don't agree with us, you can no longer be part of this community? Or is it not that... No, I mean, that's the question. So it was my understanding, and I was not part of uh, the church then, but my understanding is that at the, I guess, last or one or two times ago when they had the big national convention or whatever, the subject was brought up and they were, it was, I, I think it was summer of 2015, and it was either right before or right after the Supreme Court case was decided. And so the subject was brought up. Obviously, it was very much in the news then. And they really like couldn't. Nobody felt prepared to take a vote. And so they said, you know, let's table this for four years till the next one for study and prayer and discernment. And we'll come back and we'll decide this at the 2019 meeting. Um, So there's a lot of disagreement about it. Um, I know that there have been some very conservative churches that have split off from the main 
Menno, Menno Church USA to, to form their own smaller groups because uh, you know they want to maintain a very traditional perspective and they're concerned that the broader denomination won't. But yeah, I, I think there are a lot of people on, on in like the, the celibacy camp. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are a lot of people in the affirming camp. And there are probably still even in the main denomination people in the traditional camp. So I don't know how that will, vote will go at the denominational level. I And I don't even know how the discussion and the sermon is going to go in our congregation. I would say at my congregation, I feel confident saying it won't end up. We don't have a lot of like old school traditionalists of, you know, the sort of people who would say there's no such thing as a gay orientation. It's just your sinful desires. I would say there are definitely going to be people taking the celibacy position saying, you know, you can be gay. That is a thing, but um, marriage and sex is reserved for, for opposite sex couples. And then there will be affirming people as well. So yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I'm a little nervous to, to see how it goes down to be honest. Um, so, yeah. you know, just because it's been so destructive for so many churches, th- this disagreement. For those hearing that last 30 seconds, that last little bit of there are some that are affirming, there are some that are celibate, and there are some that are this other option, that is the book. Um, and so you'll you'll <laughs> notice there the, and, and let me brag on you a bit, there's just a grace there in not calling out anybody is wrong, uh, which is hard. But that is, as, as you buy this book, that is it. Here's all the options. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Here's the options. And then yeah, I mean, obviously someone is wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Like those three positions are mutually exclusive. They can't all be right. But to be wrong is not to be not a Christian on this and many other issues. And I think we need to be able to make that distinction of, of being able to say, I disagree with you. This is an important issue. It has implications for how we treat each other and how we understand God. And, and it matters. But disagreeing with you does not mean that I want to try to kick you out of the church. To, to build off of that, and that's where I was going with this, you recently wrote an article on Missio Alliance, which is one of my favorite websites to go to, uh, specific, I can't talk, specifically <laughs> because uh, they give a lot of data, not a lot of opinions often. And so there's usually data that backs up their articles. But you recently wrote one, I think that's what it was called, How to Disagree with Each Other Without Kicking Everybody Out of the Church. So how do I do that? How do I show up on Sunday and come with, and I know humility has to be part of it, but I also know I'm not humble by nature. I don't think anybody is. Um, maybe some of those Benedictine nuns are, but I'm not. <laughs> um, so how do we then do that? How do we disagree? Because like you said, a lot of the views that we have can't both be right. Like it, mm-hmm. they just, they theologically can't. And so as we approach the Bible and we approach scripture, how do we do that? How do we figure out who gets to be right this time without breaking off into the 67,000th version of Christianity that's somewhere in the world now? Yeah. So I think the concentric circle thing that we talked about helps a lot just in terms of maintaining a perspective um, and, and reminding ourselves that different disagreements, some matter more than others, um, you know, disagreeing about the divinity of Christ, that's one where we can fairly say, you know, if you don't think Jesus is God, by definition, you're you're not, you know. You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian at that point. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's, that's what it means. If you disagree about how to do communion, that's not, that's not a, a defining issue in the same way. 
So I think that helps just in terms of like being able to step back and take a breath and be like, okay, this matters does not mean that they're not a Christian. But yeah, it's it's difficult. And I think even even with that perspective, even with humility, it's always going to be difficult. And I'm not, I'm not like, you know, I don't have some special wisdom in this. I, I certainly am a subject to the temptation to to label someone a heretic as anybody is, you know, someone I disagree with. But but yeah, I, I think that we have to to remember that maintaining that degree of grace and, and forbearance to our fellow Christians is is part of of Christianity as well. And you know, if, if we're too eager to be slandering people and 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 breaking communion with people that we disagree with, um, that doesn't exactly reflect well on our own faith, um, on our own Christianity. And so yeah, I think it just has to be a, a constant vigilance of ourselves and we can't control how other people will come to the debate. Um, but, but we can certainly make sure that we come to it with a sense of, you know, I think I'm right and I'm, you know, as committed to, I'm committed to the, the truth as, as best as I know it and to, to always trying to find out more about the truth and, and hone my views to be more in alignment with it, but I could be wrong. And, and let's talk about that in a, in a spirit of grace. And when you describe it that way, it's a lot like a marriage. Like it's often, um, when I'm arguing with my wife, She's she's partially right. I'm partially right. And if either of us refuse to admit that, nothing happens. And usually it's it's damaging to the relationship. Um, I don't have to be all the way right and you don't have to be all the way wrong. Um, and we'll, we'll keep it phrased that way on purpose because I like to say that I'm right. But <laughs> <laughs> but um, so I'm curious and you don't at least I don't remember you speaking on it in the book, but with what you do for a living. Christians that have been gifted with influence, and so I think of like a Paige Patterson or a Jerry Falwell Jr. or uh, other names escape me at the moment, but Christians, and it doesn't matter if they're conservative or liberal or somewhere in between, as as the political landscape in our country continues to change, as voting blocks continue to change, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a millennial, and so I'm now the biggest voting block. It, most of us are just too lazy to go vote, but as as the landscape changes, how do Christians that are either inheriting that power from someone that had it, so like Jerry's kids in 10 years, how do we how do we work with that so that we don't do detrimental harm to the church in such a way that the current trends of millennials just checking out of, of quote unquote big church altogether? How do we how do we use that power to wield actual justice? And how do we do it in such a way that we don't cause harm? Um, and I don't, I don't even mean intentionally causing harm. I just mean cause harm. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope, and I think I, I see some evidence that millennials and younger generations have learned from the errors of, of the recent past to not engage in the way that some of our elders have, which I think uh, you're right, has caused harm, regardless of tension. I, I do think that there's a there's a, at least an awareness that 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 harm is possible and a desire to avoid that. Well, whether or not we actually manage to avoid it, you know, is another question. But I, I think that there's been, a, especially in the last few years, a very vivid negative object lesson for us of what happens when you do this badly. It's hard to say. It's hard to say if it'll get any better. You know, I think that a lot of the stuff that we're 
witnessing now with with the president and with the the white evangelicals support for him people feel like it's a new thing and in some ways it is a new thing you know in some ways what trump is and does is very new um but in some ways it's not um you know we've had civil religion in this country uh entangling the church and state for years um for 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 centuries for decades the church has allowed the state to sort of cloak itself in in religiosity and claim like divine approval for for the things the state is doing and and infuse our politics with like religious overtones and undertones and that's not new and so it's being used in 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 some more obviously dysfunctional ways now but i think a lot of it was already there just just less dramatic before um and so you know even if Trump goes away and things return to quote unquote more normal. I think a lot of these challenges to to engage in the public square in a way that's functional and not destructive to our own faith and our witness as Christians will remain. Yeah, I'm not I'm not very optimistic about this, as you may gather. Yeah, well, I'm not either. And 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 for those listening, don't hear me bashing the president. I don't like the president, but I genuinely think he wants to do a good job. I just think we disagree on what that good job looks like. I, I am curious, so if we think about it in an ideological way, so if history shows anything, uh, when when a force of power leaves a situation, something else takes its place. And so if the church can somehow disentangle itself from politics— what fills that gap? Because something's going to fill the gap. Yeah. I mean, when I say disentangle from politics, I don't mean that like we as Christians should stop speaking prophetically to culture and saying, you know, calling out injustice and saying this is wrong. We should not be doing this, that sort of thing. Um, And so I'm not, I'm not calling for total separation from, from society. You know, I'm, I'm not Amish. Um, but, (laughs) but I do think that, uh, you know, it goes back to what I was saying at the beginning about the idea of wanting to, to avoid suggesting that my politics are the Christian politics. And I think Christians across the ideological spectrum have been very comfortable implicitly saying that for years. And so that has two effects. One on the political side of things, it means that everybody's claiming God supports them and their agenda, you know, that, that becomes a, a very convenient and um, facile thing politically. But then on the the perspective of individuals, then it's, well, you know, I don't like this political agenda. That means I must not like Jesus. Um, and, and that's neither is a good result. And so, yeah, I, I'm not, you know, calling for a Christian shouldn't be involved in politics at all, but we need to be a lot more careful about how we do it and, and how, our what our engagement communicates about us and about God and about God's relationship to our government. Well, Bonnie, I want to give you back the rest of your morning. Um, <laughs> so the book was on sale May 15th. Uh, yes. From what I can see on Amazon, it's being received well. Uh, I don't I don't have uh, contacts at the, at the publisher, but it looks like it's being received <laughs> well. And so uh, for those listening, you'll see the link to that in the show notes. And where else would you point people to, Bonnie, to either engage in works like this or to work through the issues that you, or not the issues, the, the theological topics that you bring up in the book? 
Yeah. So, well, at the end of every chapter, there's a, a reading list to learn more. So if that's like a topic of particular concern to you, that's hopefully a start to help you engage more. On a more personal note, if you go to my website, which is just bonniechristian.com, you can get in touch with me there or on or on Twitter, which is at Bonnie Christian. But on the website specifically, you can sign up for my email list. And hopefully sooner than later this summer, I'm going to be starting a, a series for subscribers of that where each chapter has discussion questions. Um, and so my, my plan is to sort of be answering those discussion questions myself by email to sort of engage with that further and, and hopefully help readers think through it more themselves as well. So that would be good to do. That may, that may become a full-time job. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm certainly not gonna not gonna finish all the questions this summer. Maybe like one chapter a month and I'll finish a few years down the road. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on. I've I've enjoyed the conversation. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you so much. I have the benefit as editor and producer and whatever hat needs to be done for the day of letting things sit and coming back to them. And, and releasing them in an order that for some reason in the back of my head makes sense. And I didn't do that with this one. The turnaround time on the edit and the recording on this one was, was less than a day. And a lot has happened in that day. And, and so overnight as I thought about the conversation with Bonnie and woke up this morning and looked at the notifications of, of arguments and hatefulness that I've had on the internet, I, I find that I am not doing a good job currently of allowing other people to be right as well as me. And that's on me. A lot of that's my pride. And that's something I'm going to have to deal with. And I'm realizing that now. And you're probably wondering why am I saying this on a podcast. But if I can't be honest here with you, what's the point? And so think about what you heard today from Bonnie. Think about other people's point of view. And evaluate, I know I'm going to, I'm going to evaluate what I say to other people, either in person, on the phone, text message, Twitter specifically for me, and, and anywhere else that I inter- interact with people. And, and I think if I can learn to do that, and if you can learn to do that, that it's going to be a better last six months of the year than the tumultuousness of these first six months. It's going to make things like Paige Patterson, you know, just a few weeks ago, uh, all that happened with that, it's going to make the SBC a better Christian organization. It's going to make the CBF a better Christian organization. It'll make the Covenant Church and the Mennonite churches and the Catholic churches a better Christian place to be. And if we can't further that ministry, then what's the point? I hope, I really do hope, that you go out and buy Bonnie's book. It is a it is tremendous. It, I can't. I can't stress enough how hard it is to write about opposing views, and do so in a way that I don't know unless you tell me which way you lean. I think that's harder than it is. And if you don't think that it is, try it. Thank you again to our Patreon supporters. Please become one. Stop what you're doing right now and do it. I appreciate you, and you know who you are. I'm talking to you. You thought about it. I need you to do it. God, do not be still. Oh, God, you can't stand by and watch while you're.
The music today is from artist Wendell Kimbrew. You can find his music at wendellk.com. Wendell's music is beautiful. I can't stress enough. Go to his website and get his newest album, Come to Me. It's it's mostly based in the Psalms. It's beautifully sung, beautifully written, and just overall fantastic. So do support Wendell and, and go get his music. The tracks that you heard today are on the Spotify playlist entitled Can I Say This at Church? Talk to you next week.